One day, you're walking around your house and you notice a small puddle on the floor. A tad strange, but you clean it up. A week or so later, the puddle is back and you realise you have a leak. You think about whether it's a big enough deal to worry about. And after another couple of weeks, you call a plumber. They come out, give it a look, and they tell you that your pipes aren't the problem. It's just a connection that needs tightening. All fixed, you think, but the puddle comes back. And sometimes brown water comes out of the tap. But it's not too bad, and it's a bit of a hassle to call the plumber again. After a few more weeks, your friend says you should really just call a plumber. And you do. This time, it's another leaky connection. And the brown water is just a part of an old house. Nothing to worry about. But now you do worry about it. You think something worse might be happening, but no one is taking you seriously. I don't have to ask if you can imagine it, because in our community, this feeling of being worried and ignored is not imaginary. It is a very difficult one, that's for sure. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, a GP can be forgiven not to think, oh, you know, this this healthy 15-year-old who's just been out playing cricket has a sore knee. Um, oh, that it's not going to come up to be sarcoma, is it? So, you know, there's a the real truth around what the presentations are looking like and the frequency of those presentations. But what we say really is that people need to be their own advocate. From Rare Cancers Australia, this is Radio Rare, the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. I'm James Matthews, and today RCA's Dr. Emily Isham will be chatting with the CEO of the Australia and New Zealand Sarcoma Association, ANZSA, Dr. Denise Caruso, as they talk about sarcomas, clinical trials for rare cancers, and how to educate without inducing paranoia. All that and more coming up. But first, whether you have a rare or less common cancer, you are welcome here. This community is yours. Together with tens of thousands across Australia, we are strong and you are not alone. You are valued and you are home. If you or your caregiver ever need to speak to someone, our specialist cancer navigators are here for you. Reach out on 1800 257 600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Hello to all our listeners and thank you for joining us today on Radio Rare. I'm Dr. Emily Isham and with me today, Dr. Denise Caruso, the CEO of the Australia and New Zealand Sarcoma Association. Hi, Denise. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us briefly what your current roles are? Uh, Sure. My name is Denise, and I'm the CEO, as you said, of AMSAC, which is the peak body for the sarcoma community. We run clinical trials and do basic and translational research into sarcomas. We also support patient advocacy and sarcoma awareness. So tell me what kind of research you spearhead, because I know that sarcoma is vastly under-researched, especially in Australia. I haven't really looked further afield, but are you involved in the clinical trials or are you involved in funding the clinical trials? What do you guys do exactly? Oh, look, do all of it. Um, that's the thing with sarcoma. The whole agreement is broad and extremely under-researched and underfunded, and so we have to sort of take on all bits and pieces of it. So. We do run and fund clinical trials. Often they are 
work with our international collaborators as we will talk extensively about how rare sarcomas are. Uh, that's a really important thing that we work with our international colleagues to make sure that we have robust and strong data. So we often work with our European and our American groups and cooperative, collaborative research groups and run the same clinical trial across all the countries, for instance. And when we bring those trials here to Australia, ANZO is responsible for that study. And that means that we fund the funding, we do all the ethics, the governance, all the regulatory requirements, we gather the data, we do the whole lot and work out all the logistics, et cetera. So that's one part of what we do. The other part of the research that we do is we have our own sarcoma research grant round that we do every year that supports more locally lab-based research. So we're really trying to find that next thing that that can then be developed into um, a new treatment going forward. So we do that. We also look at quality of life studies as well. And um, we had a rehab study. So we kind of cover off uh, the whole gamut. That's a very comprehensive body of work that you guys do. So are you essentially the link between international research and then closely working with the hospitals throughout Australia here with trials? Yes, yes, for sarcomas, yes. We also develop our own clinical trials with investigator-initiated clinical trials here as well. So very hard to do comprehensive clinical trials into each subtype, really. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So that's why I emphasized at the beginning um, how important it is that we work with our international collaborators uh, to make sure that we can capture large enough patient numbers to make sure that the research output is robust and significant. Do you think the fact that sarcoma doesn't have the word cancer in it or any kind of ending that associates the category to oncology, does that affect the community awareness about sarcoma? Definitely. I think that's absolutely true. In fact, one of our consumers that gave an opening talk at our annual scientific meeting a few years ago was very purposeful when she spoke about her sarcoma cancer. And that was a turn of phrase that isn't commonly used, but it's absolutely appropriate. Do you mind explaining what sarcoma can develop from, please? Right. So sarcoma is a solid tumor of the bone or the soft tissues and the connective tissues. So a sarcoma is different in that it's not organ specific in the way that a breast cancer is in the breast or a prostate cancer is in the prostate. Sarcomas can be found anywhere that you have soft tissue that is not organ-specific soft tissue, connective tissues like the cartilage, um, and then the bones. So because they develop from all different types of tissue, really, essentially, and all different locations of the body, does that make each type of sarcoma rare? Yes. (laughs) Yes. And do you think all of these hurdles of sarcoma not necessarily being recognized widely as a cancer and the fact that there are so many different subtypes, do all of these kind of lead to a more prolonged diagnostic process for a patient and perhaps misdiagnoses in patients who are suffering from sarcoma? Yeah, it is an issue for us, that's for sure. I think because it's so rare, I mean, a GP may see one or two sarcomas their entire career. So... They're not going to, it's not going to be front of mind when you have a healthy 15 year old come in with a sore knee. Whilst this does use, this can result in a delayed diagnosis, it does present problems for us to make sure that a sarcoma diagnosis does get seen appropriately and as efficiently as possible. Oh gosh, wow. And in being July, Sarcoma Awareness Month, 
How do you balance educating the public that this is a cancer that these specific age groups are more likely to develop and you need to be on guard for watching out for symptoms of it versus paranoia and people thinking that every bone ache is a sarcoma? It is a very difficult one, that's for sure. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, a GP can be forgiven not to think, oh, you know, this this healthy 15-year-old who's just been out playing cricket has a sore knee. Um, oh, that it's not going to come up to be sarcoma, is it? So, you know, there's the real truth around what the presentations are looking like and the frequency of those presentations. But what we say really is that people need to be their own advocate and advocate strongly for themselves. So if you go and you have a sore knee and it's not resolved, you need to go back. You need to make sure that you um, push. It's not right. It's still not resolving and push harder about looking after yourself and that it's not right. And um, and that, I think, is a really important message, even more broadly than sarcoma, that I have to be your own advocate. Mm, that's a good point. And that's why bodies like ANSA are so important in advocating and also supporting patients through that process, I'm sure. Do you travel alongside many patients and check in and help them navigate the system as they go about these um, initial diagnoses and their treatments? Yeah, we do. We have a contact email on our website and we get lots of patients calling and saying, I've just been diagnosed this. Where do I go? What do I do? What should I do? Um, And uh, we answer all of those questions and make sure that they um, avail themselves to a sarcoma specialist treatment center, which are all on our website and that has been endorsed by AMSA and our scientific advisory committee and board so that they make sure that they are being seen by people who are familiar with their disease and know the best way forward. This is a really important point and message that I want to get across to all of your listeners that um, it's very, very important that you're seen at a proper sarcoma center. As we said, it's so, so rare. Very few people will have seen or treated these diseases outside of these centers. So it's imperative that you get yourself to one of those. And so, Denise, just in terms of educating as well our listeners, can you just tell us what are the perhaps the most common types of sarcoma that you see patients being treated for, but does it generally involve a combination of surgery and chemo and radiotherapy or are there more personalized treatments coming out now for treating sarcoma? At the moment, we don't have many, if at all, any personalized treatments for sarcoma. I think we're all working really hard on that, but as we just said, there's a lot of different diagnoses under the air. But outside of that, most sarcomas are treated firstly by a surgeon. That's the first step in the treatment pathway. And then there is chemotherapy and consultation with your medical oncologist. And that can also be in concert with radiotherapy. So many patients will have had all three of those modalities. There is some new information where you have a clinical trial now using immunotherapy in combination with radiotherapy that looks quite promising. So that will be another aspect that I, I can see in the foreseeable future will become more part of your standard therapies. And are there a lot of survivorship issues for people with sarcoma who've obviously had, well, a lot of them have obviously had some, some pretty major surgery. Are there a lot of ongoing issues for those people? Yeah, of course there are. Yeah, it's challenging. So as you said, um, a lot of sarcoma patients have very significant surgeries. Um, they can include amputations as well um, or, you know, megaplasties, which I really have to learn how to walk again and use that limb again. Um, so that in and of itself can um, have really challenging ongoing issues for survivorship. 
Um, and then the treatment regimens, including chemotherapy and radiotherapy, have their own separate long-term issues, just in physical uh, rehabilitation. But beyond that, you know, the psychological issue with sarcoma being so rare and nobody knows what you're talking about or what you've been through can be very challenging. Yeah, I can imagine it must be more about educating the people you come across rather than perhaps enjoying some empathy with people, you know, who understand immediately that you're going through cancer. What has made you specifically so passionate about sarcoma, especially after your background you know, in tumor immunology, specifically sarcoma and and raising awareness about sarcoma. I uh, did my PhD at Indiana Anderson in Houston, and that work was looking very much at how the immune system can affect tumor growth. And so when I came to Australia, I did my postdoc at the Royal Children's Hospital using um, anti-tumor immunotherapy cellular vaccines against solid tumors for kids that had failed standard therapies. And of course, a large cohort of those patients were sarcoma patients. So I ran those clinical trials for, you know, over 10 years. And after that, I really felt that I wanted to have a much broader impact and try to do something specifically for the sarcoma community. And that's how I found myself in this role. So is there a really large pediatric contingent with sarcoma compared to adults? There is. Well, there's, the vast majority of sarcoma patients are adults. But within the cancer, the childhood cancer realm, uh, about 10% of childhood cancers are sarcomas. Also in the adolescent and young adults, there's quite a lot of sarcoma patients in that cohort. So there's, But the vast majority of sarcoma patients are adults. Yes, I can imagine significant issues with long-term quality of life. Do you often involve a wide variety of allied health professionals in terms of rehabilitation afterwards? Yes, that's a huge part of the multidisciplinary team approach to a sarcoma care in these major sarcoma centers that I spoke to you about. Uh, So that's a very important aspect. And we, as I said before, AMSA has actually invested in a clinical trial in a rehab program for sarcoma patients years ago. That was very interesting. So that's a a very important part of survivorship and sarcoma care. And it sounds like from what you're saying, it's really important that you're near a sarcoma center or you've got access to good resources and, and professional expertise. In a country like Australia that has so many remote and rural areas, how do we work on getting those resources to people in really remote communities that need them? Well, I think that is a challenge for us, and it's a very difficult thing for our patients to have to deal with when they're away from their home communities. But given the rarity of sarcoma care and the the real the importance that you're being seen by someone who's seen this before. I think the only way forward is really to make sure that um, those patients are aware that the sarcoma centers are in the in the capital cities. With the advent of telehealth, I think that's been a wonderful way forward. It's something, of course, everyone in this field has been looking forward to seeing implemented. And with COVID, it seems to have happened quite quickly, which is fabulous. So I think that we'll be seeing that implemented much more with our remote and rural patients, that they can have a consult via telehealth. But I don't think that we will see a time where we're going to become a specialist in every remote and rural community. I'm wondering if there have been, you know, funding aside, if there have been opportunities presented that 
have enabled you to broaden your awareness and um, support patients better because of things like telehealth that have cropped up or perhaps other opportunities that you've seen as a result of the world essentially changing? Yeah, as, as I mentioned before, um, I think that the uh, huge jump in advance in telehealth becoming um, almost a standard now is just remarkable. I have to say we've been talking about it and trying to implement it for years and years and years, and there always were all these barriers and hurdles, and all of a sudden, all of us have fallen away. I think that'll be a great step forward for many of our patients and clinicians. That's a huge advance for us. In other terms, I'm not sure that for psychoma specifically, we can able to identify anything that would be overly advantageous that has cropped up due to the COVID pandemic. I think outside of the things that are broadly applicable in other institutions, everyone's more comfortable with Zoom meetings and uh, webinars and connecting online and in virtual um, arenas is a good thing. I think being able to take away some of those barriers for meetings and collaborations is a very good thing for us. So do you have a lot to do with patients one-on-one and supporting them through the whole process, Denise? Me personally, not so much. As I said, we do talk to lots of patients through our website and we also have phone calls and things like that. So I'm, we're very open to um, speaking with anyone at any time about anything. But I, we are not placing it. I personally am not a clinical um, practicer or practitioner. So uh, we have a research fellow and, and we try to make sure if they have a medical question that they go back to their oncologist or surgeon make sure that those questions are answered there. But we do often um, send people to find the correct resources. A lot of them are on our website now, but very specific questions about this thing or that thing, we're very happy to answer. I do, however, have um, a lot to do often with families who have lost someone to sarcoma. After all is said and done, sometimes they do find us again and are compelled to change what happened going forward for other people. So I do have a lot to do in that respect. It must be hard having your everyday focused around such a an aggressive cancer and rare cancer and something that causes so much suffering. How do you balance that with having sort of a good work-life balance and making sure you look after your own emotional well-being? Look, that is a challenge. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's a real challenge. Um, I have to say one of the reasons I stepped back from the coal phase in my clinical trial work at the Children's was was for that reason, to be able to have a, a step back from the clinical space and to be able to have a broader impact across a wider range of diseases across the sarcoma field, of course, and um, age groups. As far as myself, personally, um, look, I really enjoy the work that I do. I think the work that ANZA does is really important. And so in that way, I feel that, you know, my time and energy is really well spent. So that sort of helps balance out all the rest of it. Coming up after some words from our patient support team. What we say is really, if the lump is bigger than a golf ball and it doesn't resolve, you need to advocate for yourself and push for the next scan or to be referred elsewhere. That's really sort of the baseline. Our patient support team know that a rare cancer journey is different. We understand it can be hard to find good information, difficult to connect with others in a similar situation, 
and that you might need someone to chat to about everything that's going on. We are here to listen. We understand Rhea and you are not alone. Contact our patient support team on 1800 257 600. Welcome back, but I've got bad news. The leak is still there and you think it's getting worse. Maybe it's time to seek a second opinion. For the break, Denise and Emily were talking about Denise's passion for sarcomas and how the challenge of educating the public without inciting widespread panic. Trying to reframe the sarcoma conversation, however, is just one way the ANZSA is trying to make a better life for sarcoma patients. So let's rejoin the conversation as Denise tells us about the relation between oncologists and her organisation. Yes, I'm sure you can see the massive difference you guys make in that world. Are you finding that oncologists themselves who aren't sarcoma specialists are coming to you guys to seek information and seek guidance? Uh, yeah, so we do get those emails as well and say, what do I do? I have this patient that has this thing. What do I do? Um, and um, so we always do tell them to send them to their capital city sarcoma specialist treating center. And then from there, they can work together with their regional practitioner, uh, local practitioner and the sarcoma center. And how close are we in Australia to getting to the better platform of awareness and research funding that you guys are aiming for? Like, are we, is that imminent or is this still a long way in the making? I think that's a really hard one. I, um, we've been lucky to see that the rare cancers do all the great work you guys have done has come to the forefront and some funding opportunities have become available in recent years, which never were there before. So I think, you know, that's been wonderful for our community going forward. And I think, unfortunately, with COVID, that's really sent a lot of things in disarray in all kinds of different ways. I'm not really sure what it'll look like for us going forward as far as funding opportunities. For sarcoma specifically in the rare cancer space, we're lucky that we do have Cancer Australia support for infrastructure, the MRFS has been good for us, but we will always have to make the case, um, given our very small patient numbers, that this is still important and still worthy of government investment. It is a hard case to keep making over and over and over again, but that's something we have to deal with. Right. So you kind of have to prove yourselves to the government. Is that something that you have to do monthly or annually, or you have to get patients involved in? What is involved in that process, Denise? All of the above. <laughs> um, I think it's a challenging space to be in to uh, try and convince government to fund rare cancers. It's something that we've been working on for a long time. I know that uh, your organization has done a great job in bringing it to the forefront. For us, we do try to um, make a case for our individual projects within the broader scheme that this is very important. This is um, if you if it doesn't get funded this way, it won't happen, and our patients will miss out. And we do use our consumer advisory panel to help us with this uh, advocacy as well. Um, in every grant application that we put through, I think a larger body sort of push to government, sort of like the Brain Mission, which has been amazingly successful, is sort of our dream to be able to achieve something like that. But I don't know how far away that would be at this stage. So one of the things that's been really important for ANZA is 
our most of our research funding has actually been funded through philanthropic donations because sarcoma is so rare and because there's a lot of competing voices for that government sarcoma uh, government research funding dollar um, sarcoma has traditionally been left behind so we're extremely grateful to our philanthropic supporters um, and you know families doing fun runs or tree nights and all those things they really do go a long way and we've been able to fund a few clinical trials through those funds and uh, we're really really grateful for all of that support of course these days with covid it's been a bit challenging and i know we're not the only ones in that space but um yeah that, that's really where most of our research funding comes from for us, because we get um, the infrastructure support from Cancer Australia, 100% of our donated dollars go to research, which most people can't say, but we can because of this beautiful infrastructure funding, thank God, from Cancer Australia. I mean, it has to be said that the way cancer research is going and the technology that's being developed, it looks like the genomic data that we're getting might enable us to be able to identify cancers based on their mutations. Um, and treat them based on that rather than categorizing them as a whole. And that really could be a game changer for sarcoma. Is that right? Sure, it could be, definitely. I think there's a lot of work going through um, using genomics as an identifier. And, you know, there's a, some great ideas of just running all of that and go finding what those targets are that are already maybe proven in different scenarios and other disease streams. I, I think that's a very important and powerful way forward. I also think that there's so much still out there to learn. And, um, you know, it's wonderful when you do find a hot spot with a mutation and there's already drug ready to go. <laughs> that may not have already been implicated in sarcoma, but um, could be very useful. I think that's a wonderful synergy, but uh, probably the more rational approach going forward would be a combination of all of those things. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's such a broad field across the board with cancers that it's still a long way off realistically, changing the way we mm. treat cancers and diagnose them. Have you found, though, on the flip side, that a lot of patients have had delayed treatment protocols or difficulty accessing their radiation treatments or their medical teams as a result of this pandemic, Denise? No, we've been all right with that. They did put some things in place for radiation on one of our trials where you could go to your more local one instead of coming into the CBD one, which I think, again, was, you know, a really good thing for patients that maybe wasn't as readily acceptable beforehand. Sorry, I, I know that a lot of uh, other chronic diseases are being, people are delaying going to their doctors. And I'm just wondering if sarcoma is one of those types of cancers that people kind of put off and put off and put off because it just kind of initially often feels like a twinge or a sore muscle. And I'm wondering if, if that seems to have shown itself in that maybe you had a paucity of people seeking advice and guidance in diagnoses and maybe you're expecting an increased rate of those from now onwards. Right. I see what you're saying. So, yeah, no, you're right. Sarcoma is the one that people just stop, especially because it is often just so a little something here, maybe a swelling or I twisted it going up the stairs or whatever. So that's always been the case. And then we know that uh, GPs and the wider community have reduced the referrals into specialist centers and onto oncologists at the beginning of the pandemic here in Australia. And that the message Although, of course, um, everyone was trying to reduce patients in hospitals and going to hospitals, that that was not 
what was in the best interest of your patients in the um, community. And so that hopefully has changed now, but there was a huge drop in referrals and that will create issues, unfortunately. And in terms of educating the medical fraternity, I suppose, do you guys offer things like workshops or lecture series or even those written guidance for GPs and other health professionals who are seeking some guidance in diagnosing or just wanting some more awareness on what to look out for? So there's quite a bit of work that's done around that. So we have issued the sarcoma guidelines on through Cancer Council years ago. We're updating those now. Uh, So that's always been available. We often do run workshops within specialists, ASMs and other um, education days. So, um, you know, the the general surgeons will have a sarcoma module, the nurses will have a sarcoma module, etc. And then ANZA cells, we hold an annual scientific meeting every year that um, has a large education component to it, as well as all the information on our website, which is catered for both professionals and patients. We also have some tools on there that are readily downloadable and useful for both clinicians and patients. And we have our webinar series this month. We have four different series. Our first one is going to be aimed at educating the wider public. Gosh, that sounds really interesting. I'm sure that many of our listeners will be able to seek some more information based on what they're interested in on your website, given the whole gamut that you have available. Do you find that the experience and the research you've done has really tied well into this role? Because it sounds like you're perfectly suited to heading up this association. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's sort of a, a winding path, isn't it? How we find ourselves where we are sometimes. So, yeah, in my role before this one, I did spend a lot of time educating uh, people who had an interest in childhood cancer and solid cancers or sarcomas. And I actually really enjoyed that part of my role, as well as the science part and as well as the clinical trial part. So I think the role that I have with ANZA now uh, does sort of go to those strengths. I'm very passionate about the work that we do, and I'm very um, interested in seeing things improve. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting how you find yourself where you are sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Do you find that you come across a lot of trepidation and fear in the public when you talk about clinical trials and people needing to use them for part of their treatment? That's another one of our big education points. Um, And also through Cancer Australia, that to educate the public on what a clinical trial is and that it shouldn't be a scary thing, that it's a really good thing. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but in the childhood cancer space, you know, almost every childhood is on, every child is on a clinical trial. It's just embedded in their practice. And that's really what we'd like to see in the adult world as well. So clinical trials are not the guinea pig, scary, novel thing that, you know, is, is you know, putting your life at risk as such, which I think as you're, you're alluding to some people in the public may think that that's what it is. Once it gets to the clinic, of course, it's had extensive testing, extensive safety, extensive feasibility, and we're really just trying to see how it will work, if it will work better, even if it's only a little bit better, um, if it's tolerable and all of those things. So I think 
all the evidence tells us that even if the agent that's being investigated or the methodology that's being investigated isn't necessarily a positive trial, doesn't actually help you, you actually get much better care if you're on a clinical trial just because of all of the checks and balances involved in being on a trial. So Denise, what would your message to the public essentially be regarding what to look out for with sarcoma and who to seek? Right. So what we say is really um, if the lump is bigger than a golf ball and it doesn't resolve, you need to advocate for yourself and push for the next scan or to be referred elsewhere, et cetera, get a second opinion. That's really sort of the baseline uh, message that we say. So if and then if it does come back as a sarcoma, then get yourself to a sarcoma specialist center. So that's really important. They're all listed on our website. And that's really, really important because that's where you'll be seen by a multidisciplinary team. You'll be seen by sarcoma experts who've seen what you have before. They know what the next treatments are. They know what the next phase is. So I think that's hugely important. If you um, are told it might be a sarcoma, then definitely get yourself to one of those sarcoma specialists. Sometimes people do get referred to, you know, a different oncologist or a different surgeon. And then once that determined that you have a sarcoma, they often will send you on anyway. Okay, that's good to know. And what are the age groups that we're kind of looking at with the highest risk? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> that's a hard one. I think, it, as I said, sarcoma can be any age, anywhere. Um, so I'm not sure that we would say the highest risk as the statistics show us. Obviously, the adults um, have more sarcomas than the younger ones do. But I think it's just such a a surprise when it's a young one, isn't it? That it's really not front of mind that that, could, that little lump on your knee could be a cancer. So um, I'm not sure that I would say that anyone's at a higher risk outside of the actual statistics that older people get more more sarcomas. Yep, sure, and and it's and it's difficult to kind of categorize it anyway, given that it's so broad. I spoke to Tanya Rice Brading last week about her son Cooper, and the foundation that they've started to to raise awareness and to increase funding for the research. And I mean, they're doing amazing things through a tragedy that occurred as a result of sarcoma, and how they want you know no one else to go through that. And I only just hope that this continues and and people become more aware and if, if they do, you know, if, if we can't get on top of sarcoma itself, at least we can get the diagnoses quicker so that people can start treatment sooner because I'm sure that makes a huge difference, right? Yeah, of course it does. Yeah, yeah it does. Definitely. Well, thank you, Denise. Now, just my final question, I, like I ask everyone, I like to find out what the people I talk to listen to and what they read. So do you have a favourite novel or podcast um, at the moment? Um, I do like my podcasts. I do like my novels too. <laughs> but um, one of the, my go-to uh, podcasts that I always like to listen to is Radio Lab. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but it's a really interesting uh, one that's put on from NPR in the States. And they cover off history, they cover off science, they cover off all kinds of quirky and wonderful things. Oh, that sounds good. I'll have to check that one out. I haven't come across that one just yet. Thanks for the recommendation. Yeah, thanks for that. 
Well, thank you so very much for your time today, Dr. Caruso. I know you're a busy woman and uh, we really appreciate you putting aside the time to share your expertise and your advice with the public and tell us about ANSWER's work that uh, you all do in advocating and supporting patients through this process, but also um, spearheading those clinical trials and um, the research. It's, it's a wonderful service and I can see that it's helping a lot of people along the way. So thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. We'd like to thank Denise once again for joining us on Radio Rare and for both her work to secure better treatments and for her insights into the sarcoma cancer space. Just a reminder to all of our listeners that some clinical trials have slowed down or paused during the pandemic, but some are already starting to reopen. So it's best you check with your individual institution or centre about what their specific plans are. It can be difficult to advocate for yourself, but sometimes it can make all the difference in the world. Look after yourselves, my friends. I'm Dr. Emily Isham, and I'll catch you next time. Our leaks are now gone, and everything is crystal clear once again. Thankfully, a small leak is not life-threatening. Sarcomas, however, while only making up 1% of cancers in adults, it accounts for 20% of cancers diagnosed in children. They can form anywhere in the body and come in more than 80 subtypes. This month is Sarcoma Awareness Month. Though as Denise said, if you have a lump and it's bigger than a golf ball, get it checked. Next episode, Dr. Emily will be speaking with Luke Bourne about his experience of living with an advanced stage of a rare aggressive cancer. With no defined treatment pathway and how he's managed to maintain a fighting attitude over the past five years, despite the grim prognosis from the outset. And before I leave you with a clip from next week's episode, remember, while you may only be one person with your form of cancer, you are not alone. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. There's this feeling where you've got growth happening inside you and no treatment options, so it doesn't really seem like there's future in sight at all. And trying to comprehend that is so extremely difficult and uh, again I, I feel so lucky because I was so supported through that process. Radio Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia and is hosted by Dr Emily Isham and me James Matthews. Narrative writing and mixing of today's episode by Alexander Smith. Reporting by Dr Emily Isham. We are edited by Christine Coben and myself and our episode music is from Audioblocks. You can listen to all of our episodes for free on our website and you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Simply search Rare Cancers Australia and click the subscribe or follow button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with written stories from patients, carers and information regarding rare cancers. Thank you for listening. We'll be back shortly with our next episode.